Take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Jonah with me. We'll be in uh, chapter 2 this morning. If you have one of our uh, handout Bibles from either side of the room here, you can find that on page 821. And again, I want to encourage you to to take that Bible, keep it. Um, Maybe you don't have a copy of the CSB. That's the translation we use here. You're welcome to have that, even if you have a Bible of your own so that you can follow along in that translation. Maybe you like to read through a different translation as we're going through this. That's all great. The point is that we get in the Word together. And even if you grab a Bible and take that home, our hope is that you do that throughout the week with someone else and, uh, and let that Word get into you. And so I want to encourage you to do that. If you, if you want to join the reading plan that we're doing, there's copies of that over there as well. But hopefully this morning you have a Bible in front of you, whether that's a physical one in your lap or, or on your device. You can turn there to Jonah chapter 2. This chapter is going to close out the first half of the book, okay? Four chapters, two two sections that really parallel each other. We're going to close out this first section this morning with chapter 2. Just a recap, since uh, we weren't here together last week because of the weather. In chapter 1, God told Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh, and preach against it because of the evil of the Ninevites has come up uh, uh, to me, right? And uh, what did Jonah do? Uh, he got up and, and he ran straight to Nineveh, right? No, he didn't. He ran straight away from Nineveh in the opposite direction. He disobeyed God's command. He fled as far as he possibly could the other way. And what we saw in chapter one was this downward spiral that disobedience leads us into, not just physically, but spiritually. We saw that in Jonah as he went further and further down. And that downward spiral of rebellion landed him literally inside the belly of a huge fish, right? A fish that God himself, uh, we were told at the end of chapter one, appointed to swallow Jonah. Not to eat him, right? But to save him. To save him. Chapter two is Jonah's response to God's salvation. And as we work through our, uh, our way through it this morning, it My hope is that it'll challenge each of us then to think about how we ought to respond to this God who saves. And so I want to read the whole thing, chapter 2. It's it's really short, uh, and then we'll dig into it. Uh, We'll go back through it together. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit. Lord, my God, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things here, not simply to be amazed by how you can use things even as weird as a giant fish, but how you constantly pursue us with your grace, 
bring us back to yourself and remind us of your faithful love, how you are the God who saves. Would you help us this morning to declare confidently with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in uh, 2013, a Nigerian man named Harrison Okene survived for three days inside a small air pocket of a capsized tugboat that sank down to the bottom of the uh, Atlantic Ocean, about 100 feet down off the coast of Nigeria. Three days in the dark, in the cold and wet, inside this boat, 100 feet down in the ocean because there was a small air pocket that got trapped in a cabin. Crazy, right? Crazy. Later in an interview with a local news outlet, Harrison said that as he sat there in this makeshift raft that he built with things that were in the room floating in there, and he he was in this dark, cold cabin of the boat, breathing in this ever-dwindling supply of oxygen, he assumed that he was going to die. That's a fair assumption, right? But then he cried out to God for rescue. And lo and behold, that rescue came. The Lord saved him from death when divers who had gone down to recover the, the victims of this, the rest of the, all of the crew that they thought were dead, assumed were dead as well, reached out for his hand and then his hand grabbed back. Can you imagine being that diver? <laughs> they found him. They helped him out of his watery tomb and they brought him safely back to dry ground. Now, I don't think any of us in this room would be eager to go through an experience like that, Right? It suddenly like puts perspective into like, oh, I got to go scrape the ice on my car today, right? But why? Why are we not eager to, to, to try something like that or experience something like that? Because the thought of being trapped underwater with no way out evokes in us this degree of helplessness that we would all rather avoid, right? Nobody likes to be helpless, do they? None of us likes to feel helpless because it exposes our vulnerability and our inability. Our vulnerability and our inability. And there's nothing that that amplifies that feeling of helplessness more than being faced with impending death that we can do nothing to stop, right? But I think what we'll see this morning in our passage is that helplessness primes us for thankfulness. Helplessness primes us for thankfulness. Why? Because when help does come, we know that it didn't come from us, right? We know that it didn't come from us. Someone else did for us what we could not do for ourselves. At the end of chapter one, we saw Jonah end up in a situation very similar to Harrison Okene, except that instead of being trapped in uh, for three days in a sunken tugboat, which is crazy and amazing in and of itself. Jonah was trapped inside the belly of a huge fish, which is crazy and amazing in and of itself, right? And it's also, it was also Jonah's fault that he was there. I, I don't think that Harrison Okene was the reason that, for the tugboat to go down. Jonah disobeyed and he ran from God. But here in chapter two, we're gonna listen to Jonah's prayer to God from inside this belly of the fish, And it's framed up like a psalm of thanksgiving, okay? And and if you know anything about a psalm of thanksgiving, it typically has four elements to it. There's an introduction that gives a summary of an answered prayer. Then there's a description of a personal crisis followed by a description of divine rescue. And then there's a vow of praise. And we're gonna see all four of these elements in this psalm of thanksgiving 
uh, that Jonah prays inside the belly of this fish. And together, all of these elements are going to point us to this main idea. And here it is. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, all who are saved by him have every reason to give him thanks. Because salvation belongs to the Lord, all who are saved by him have every reason to give him thanks. We're going to discover some of those reasons in our passage this morning. It's not an exhaustive list, but here's what I think that we'll find. Here's the first reason. Reason number one, God hears and answers our cries for help. Look at the first two verses again of chapter two. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he what? Answered me, right? I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. Now, there's the introduction that summarizes the answered prayer. That's the first element. Verse 1 tells us that Jonah is praying this prayer from inside the belly of the fish. But, but did you catch, like, he, he starts off the prayer in past tense, Verse two says, uh, essentially, I prayed to you and you answered me. Past tense prayer, past tense answer. So there are actually two prayers in view here. The one that Jonah is currently praying inside the fish and the one that Jonah has already prayed before the fish swallowed him. And this prayer inside the fish is thanking God for answering the prayer outside of the fish. Okay, you following with me here? In previous times that I've read through this book, uh, I don't think that I've read chapter two correctly. And as I've gone through it, my assumption is, is like, if you look for repentance in this prayer, I don't think you'll really find it that, that, what, that much. And if you know the story, the whole storyline, Jonah's really pretty calloused. And there, he's got way more repenting to do by the time we get to chapter four, Right? This prayer, in my mind, in the past, has felt more like he just wants to be rescued from his situation than anything else. Rescued from the fish. Regardless, though, of whether or not we don't have the other prayer, we can't read it, we don't know what he said in that, right? I think there's room for that to have been a prayer of repentance. But whether or not that's the case, here's what we can know for sure, because this is what Jonah does tell us. He prayed and God answered. God heard his prayer and answered him, even though Jonah ran from God, even though Jonah blatantly ignored God, God still listened to Jonah. He still listened to Jonah, and he responded when Jonah cried out to him. Back in chapter one, when the seas were raging and the ship captain told Jonah to cry out to his God, Jonah refused to pray while he was cozied up inside the belly of the ship, right? But when Jonah ended up sinking toward his death in the belly of the sea, prayer was his only option. When you're being pulled down and you want to go up, you've got no other choice, right, but to pray. Verse 2 says, I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. Literally, the Hebrew there says, from the stomach of Sheol, from the belly, right? Sheol was understood to be this realm of the dead where the wicked go to be punished by God after they die. After Jonah was thrown overboard in chapter one, it seems that sinking helplessly into the watery depths of the sea bubbled Jonah's guilt and and shame to the surface of his mind and heart. What have I done? 
I thought I wanted to be thrown into the, rip, into the sea. It was a bad idea. You ever been there? Thinking something is the right thing until you get there? And you realize it's not? He didn't just need to be saved from the sea. He needed to be saved from his sin. And then in the response to that reality, he cried out to the only one who could save him from both. And in his sovereign grace, God listened to Jonah's cry for help, but he didn't, it goes beyond that. We need to see this. God didn't just hear it and then be like, mm, you had your chance. He responded. He listened. He heard Jonah's cry and he did something about it. He responded to him by saving him from the belly of the sea and putting him in the belly of a fish, right? And using this fish as some sort of submarine of sorts for three days and three nights to keep Jonah alive. Jonah is now more thankful to be inside the belly of the fish than he was ever uh, thankful to be inside the belly of the ship. Back in chapter one. Now, I think that we can all admit that this is a super weird answer to prayer, right? Like, if we had our preference, the Lord would just somehow shoot us up so that we could break the surface of the water and gasp that deep breath. Open our mouths wide and, and breathe in fresh air. But instead, he opened a fish's mouth wide and swallowed Jonah up. It's weird, right? It's okay to acknowledge that. When we read something in the Bible, and like, is that, what is this? But it's true, Weird doesn't mean false in Scripture. Weird means God's ways are higher than our ways, right? But, but we can get so caught up in trying to figure that out that we end up missing this vital point here, this incredible reason to give God thanks. He hears and answers our cries for help. He hears and he answers our cries for help. Listen, even when we have gotten ourselves into the mess, to the situation that we're in, even when we have run from God, even when we have blatantly ignored God, what does God do? He listens to us. He hears our cries when we humbly cry out to him in our helplessness and he readily responds with his saving grace. That reality removes then any excuse that you and I can come up with to keep from crying out to God in our distress, doesn't it? You're probably thinking of something in your mind right now. Well, what about this? Try it. Cry out to him. He hears and he responds. If God heard and answered Jonah's prayer, we can be confident that he will hear and answer ours. Why? Well, the answer is found in the second reason that we have to give God thanks. Reason number two, God will bring us to the end of ourselves, but he will never abandon us. He will bring us to the end of ourselves, but he will never abandon us. Look at verses three and four. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Verse 15 of chapter one tells us that the sailors threw Jonah overboard, right? He's, he told them, you guys throw me overboard. It tells us, they did. They threw him overboard. But here in verse three, Jonah recognizes God's own sovereign hand behind their action. What did he say? 
when you threw me into the sea. He recognizes that this is God's judgment in response to his rebellion. Jonah says, your breakers, your billows swept over me. He knows that God is the one who made the sea and the dry land. He told the sailors that in chapter one, right? I worship this God. And he knows that God is the one who threw a great wind onto the sea and stirred up the stormy waves. When they cast the lot, it, dro- it dropped it to Jonah. He's like, it's my fault, right? The irony in all of that is because he was fleeing God's presence. And the irony is that once uh, the current of the sea pulled him under, Jonah felt like God was banishing him from his presence. Jonah ran away, tried to get away from God, but we know this, right? You can't run from God's presence. And yet, here he is sinking down to his death and he feels like God gave him exactly what he wanted. And that made Jonah realize that he didn't actually want to get away from God. You ever been there? Thinking you know better and thinking that you can leave God behind? And then suddenly you you realize, oh, I'm in a bind now. I actually need God. Sometimes you don't know what you've got until it's gone, right? And yet even as he's sinking, Jonah seems to have hope that God will not abandon him altogether. It's like the words of Paul, right? We felt like, in in 2 Corinthians, what we just read for prayer time, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But why? So that we would learn not to depend on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead, right? Even when he's sinking, Jonah has hope that God will not abandon him altogether. He says, I will look once more toward your holy temple, Now, the temple in in those days was associated with the presence of God on earth. King Solomon was the one that built that temple, and he dedicated it. After it was built, he dedicated it with a prayer. You can read that whole prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. It's a a beautiful prayer, a, a plea to God to hear the prayers of anyone who prays toward the temple because they're, they're, they're focusing their mind and heart toward the presence of God. And Solomon knows that not even the heavens can hold the Lord, let alone an earthly temple. And so in his prayer, he says, when they pray toward this place where you have said you will be, manifest your presence on earth, will you please hear from heaven and answer their prayer? Jonah's knowing this prayer right now. Jonah's remembering Solomon's words. And he doesn't know hardly which way is up in the ocean or in the sea. And yet he trusts that even now as I'm sinking, the Lord can hear me. He hears and he answers prayer. He'll bring us to the end of ourselves, but he will never abandon us. When Jonah says, I will look toward your holy temple in verse four, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about praying to God. It's the prayer that he prayed that, that, that God had answered in verse one. Or verse two, excuse me. Even though Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the sea, even though he knew that his rebellion and God's judgment were the reasons that he was sinking, he also knew that God could and would still hear him if he cried out for help. Well, that we would know that as well. We get even more details about Jonah's personal crisis in the next few verses. Look at five through seven. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the 
foundations of the mountains, the, to the earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raise my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Can you sense the degree of helplessness that Jonah was feeling before he cried out to God? Look again at the language that he's using here. Maybe you want to underline this in your Bible. The current overcame me, right? Breakers and billows swept over me. You ever been out to the ocean and got caught in the undertow of a wave? I've been banished, he says. The water engulfed me, swallowed me up. The depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that last word picture alone is enough to make someone who's, uh, even someone who is not claustrophobic, feel that sense of angst and panic and want to just take a big, deep breath. Imagine seaweed wrapped around your mouth and your nose like a wet towel underwater. Anybody want to breathe right now? While you're being pulled further and further down, you can see the surface and it's getting darker and darker. Helplessness. In Psalm 18, verses four and five, King David said, the ropes of death were wrapped around me in a situation he was in. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. This is describing what Jonah understands this, right? What David said uh, metaphorically here, Jonah's experiencing metaphorically, but also literally. The seaweed acts like the chains of Sheol and is pulling him down to death. When he says, I sank to the foundations of the mountains in verse six, he's talking about the floor of the seas. On the bottom, he literally hit rock bottom. He couldn't go any lower physically or spiritually. He felt the gates of death bar him like a prisoner into something he could not get out of. And in his most helpless moment, Jonah remembered the Lord and he prayed to him. And what do you think Jonah remembered about the Lord? I think he remembered from Exodus chapter 34 that the Lord himself calling himself this, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Jonah's gonna describe God that way in chapter four. That's why I think that it's safe for us to assume that he's thinking about God that way here. Jonah needed a God like that, didn't he? He'd hit rock bottom spiritually, physically. He had come to the end of himself and he was utterly helpless to do anything other than pray to the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth and who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. God brought Jonah to the end of himself so that Jonah would return to God. And when Jonah prayed, God showed him that even though he had abandoned God, God had not abandoned him, right? And how did God respond to Jonah's desperate prayer? Well, here's the divine rescue. The description is in verse six at the end of it. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. God rescued Jonah from death and he gave him life anew, Right? Jonah did nothing to deserve that rescue, did he? 
No, what he deserved was the watery grave. What he deserved was to be locked up behind the gates of Sheol as a prisoner under God's wrath forever. He ran from God. He rebelled against God. He refused to listen to God. And yet, he prayed to God in his helplessness, and God did not refuse to listen to him. We sang this this morning. Jonah was saved by grace alone through faith. He remembered the Lord. Isn't this a helpful portrait of the gospel? Like Jonah, we've all run from God. We've all rebelled against God. We've all refused to listen to God. And because of that, we all deserve the wrath of God. But when we realize the mess that we've created for ourselves and we recognize the helplessness that we are in, how helpless we are to do anything about it. And then when we remember God and we cry out to him in our helplessness, he rescues us with his grace and raises our lives from the pit. This is the gospel. This is the picture of what God does to people who don't deserve anything from him other than death. And that rescuing grace has come to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. As the son of God, he never ran from the father. Never ran from the father, but instead he was sent by the father. We saw that in John's gospel, right? He never rebelled against the father, but instead he obeyed the father perfectly and never sinned. He never refused to listen to the father, but instead Jesus himself said, I only do and say what the father reveals to me, right? He didn't deserve the wrath of God. But he willingly took the guilt of sinners upon himself and he suffered the wrath of God in our place when he died on the cross. And on the third day, after three days and three nights, the Father raised his life from the pit of death, proving Jesus' innocence and providing eternal life to all who cry out to him in their helplessness. It's the gospel. This reality is captured beautifully in one of the songs that we sing here on Sunday mornings. We didn't sing it this morning. We sang some other great ones. But listen to these words. This is from the second verse in, in the chorus of a song called All I Have is Christ. But as I ran, Jonah language, right? My hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Aren't those glorious words to sing? To know in your heart Listen, have you hit rock bottom like Jonah has, like the rest of us have at least once, if not many times in our lives? If you come to the end of yourself, do you recognize your own helplessness? Then hear me when I say that you are at, uh, that you're in a place of great hope, even though it feels like a, pr- a place of great despair. Do you want me to tell you Why? because you see the futility of your own efforts and anything else to save you from the breakers and the billows that come from God's own hand. And God himself has primed you to look to Jesus for rescue. 
you see your need for it. You don't just see that you need it. You start to see that you want it. So why not cry out to him then in your helplessness? Why not run to Jesus in faith? You can confess your iniquity, your rebellion, and your sin to the God who abounds in faithful love and truth and forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You can be forgiven and you can be raised to life by the God who raised Jonah from the pit and his one and only son from the tomb. And you and me to new life in Christ. You don't have to keep sinking. You can cry out to the God who hears and responds, who will bring you to the end of yourself, but who will not abandon you. Isn't that a great reason to cry out to him? It's also a great reason to give him thanks, isn't it? Here's one more. Reason number three. God doesn't make us earn our salvation. We uh, Praise God for that. But he does free us to live sacrificially in response. God doesn't make us earn our salvation, but he does free us to live sacrificially in response. Look at the last three verses, eight through ten. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Back in chapter one, when God churned up the sea with a great storm, the sailors were terrified, right? And they cried out, each one cried out to his own God for help. But did any of those gods answer? No, why? Because they're worthless idols, right? Made of wood and stone, speechless things, lifeless things. But when they cried out to the Lord for help, what happened? He helped them, right? And we saw the sailors themselves, these pagan sailors, make vows of praise and worship this God at the end of chapter one. But I don't think Jonah's talking to these sailors here in verse eight. Instead, this, this seems to be a warning to Israelites who would later read this book. Don't forget, we have this in our Bibles now. So it's not just for the Israelites, but it's also for us, right? Ever since God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, if you know anything about their history from the Old Testament, you know that one of the biggest things that, that uh, characterized uh, Israel was a history of idolatry a history of running from God, a history of rebelling against God, a history of refusing to listen to God and turning away to these worthless idols, abandoning their faithful love, not their love to him, but the one who faithfully loves, abandoning their faithful love, this God who abounds in it, right? We never see Jonah worship false gods made of wood and stone in this book, but it doesn't take much for us to see that he was his own idol when he abandoned his faithful love by running away from God. He did what he wanted, not what God wanted. And it doesn't take much to see how prone we are to worship worthless idols just like Jonah did, just like the sailors did, and just like the Israelites did. Why? Because that's what humans do ever since the fall in the garden, right? A worthless idol is anything that we think will love us more faithfully than God will. 
Do you have any of those? Any worthless idols in your life right now? Anything that you're looking to for security, love, identity, meaning, purpose, contentment, joy, hope, peace, or life apart from God? Are you putting your trust in something or someone, including yourself, that you think will do a better job of giving you those things than God can or will? That's a worthless idol. And since we are all prone to worship worthless idols, we need to remember this reality that God is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. He's the only God, and he will make that very, very clear. And he has made that very clear in his word. But here's the other thing we need to remember. He's a merciful God. He's a merciful God who, who will not, a jealous God who will not give his glory to another, but a merciful God who freely gives his, his faithful love to any and all who come to him for it. All who put their trust in him. And that means that when we try to run from him and worship other things, he shows us his faithful love by helping us see those things for what they really are and helping us see him for who he really is. Helpless situations have a tendency to do that for us. Sometimes that means then that he brings us to the end of ourselves so that we clearly see that he's all we have left. Oh, but he is enough, right? In verse seven, Jonah said, as my life was fading away, I what? Remembered. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. And the Lord responded to Jonah's prayer with what? Faithful love, right? And now that Jonah has experienced the faithful love of God, who did not abandon him even though he tried to abandon God, Jonah then vows to sing songs of thanksgiving and make sacrifices that tangibly express this gratitude to God for what he's done. And when we have experienced this faithful love of the God who did not abandon us, we too can tangibly express our gratitude to God for what he has done. But we don't have to feel the burden of trying to repay God. We need to know this too. We don't, feel this, we don't have to feel this burden of trying to repay God because we know, as Jonah declares here in verse 9, that salvation belongs not to us. Who does salvation belong to? The Lord, right? We know that what belonged to us was our sin, our guilt, our shame, and God's wrath. That's ours. That's what belongs to us. But salvation belongs to the Lord. And because salvation belongs to the Lord, guess what? He removed those things from us by his sovereign grace and he set us free to live sacrificially for him in response as an expression of worship. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. So what then does it look like for us to live sacrificially for this Lord of faithful love? Well, it definitely doesn't mean that we start bringing in sheep next week and slaughtering them, right? I know the carpet probably needs clean, but we don't need to make it worse. What does it mean then? What does that even mean, to live sacrificially for God? Well, because the perfect spotless lamb of God was sacrificed once for all time, and he's made us a new, the new temple where the, his spirit dwells now, we have assistance, we have the help that we need. We don't actually have to be helpless again because we have the spirit who lives in us and that Holy Spirit who dwells in us, then through his power, we offer ourselves 
as the New Testament tells us, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Lord. What does that mean? It means that we prioritize God and his gospel mission by freely and joyfully sacrificing the time and the energy and the money and the resources that God has entrusted to us to promote the gospel and point people to Jesus. If you're a member here at Redeemer, you signed a church covenant with that, that you agreed to those exact words. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit myself to these things. It means that we open our ransom lives to be used by God in any way that he chooses to borrow more lyrics from that song, All I Have is Christ. Because if salvation belongs to him and we belong to him because salvation belongs to us, we get to do that. It's when we are thankful that God has saved us by his grace and thankful that he doesn't make us earn it by our works that we are then free to live sacrificially so that others can know this salvation that belongs to the Lord and not to them. That they can learn not to rely on themselves but on the God who raises the dead and they can look to him in dependence and confidence and see his faithful love. Can you imagine how thankful Harrison Okene was to take his first breath of fresh air. The moment his head finally popped up out of the sea. Can you imagine how thankful Jonah was to be covered in fish vomit standing on dry land? That's like the only way I would ever be thankful for fish vomit. How thankful are you for the salvation that you have received from the Lord? Because salvation belongs to the Lord, all who are saved by him have every reason to give him thanks. We should be thankful that God hears and answers our cries for help. We should be thankful that even though he brings us to the end of ourselves, he will never abandon us. We should be thankful that he doesn't make us earn our salvation and that he frees us to live sacrificially in response. These are just three of the unlimited reasons that we have to give God thanks for his salvation. This is Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving. If we could read yours, what would it say? Father, we thank you for your word that teaches and instructs our hearts and directs us yet again to Christ. And I pray that as we go out this week, as we continue reading your word in Jonah, in the reading plan, whatever it is, as we open that, Lord, that you would show us yet again and yet again your faithful love, your mercies that are new, that you would help us to respond in joyful thanksgiving and that we would consider these things, Lord. How would we describe, summarize the answered prayers that you have made for us? How would we tell others our uh, stories of personal crisis? How would we explain your divine rescue? And how would we show them how we're living in response, freely worshiping you through sacrificial living? Father, we pray that you would get all the glory and that you would make us a thankful people together, ever increasing in that thankfulness because of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.